Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life led tickets from Africa round trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash mtp or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp, the number four and the letter U com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. We, we, we talked about what you do a little bit before, but obviously I'm, I'm, I'm still in the dark um, to a wide extent. Help me understand a little better how you got into extreme travel in the first place. Um, how did your own travel story start? Um, I mean, without wanting to... <laughs> take a, a sort of tangential view already um i'm not we're not i'm not always desperately comfortable about the term extreme travel to say this is what you know this is james wilcox this is untamed borders this is extreme travel so um just in general because what we try and do as well as guide people and organize logistics in, in, in countries is to try and show them in a much more nuanced way to try and give people a kind of a bigger experience of the countries they're in a cultural experience the geography the geopolitics is certainly one part of that but to then sort of pigeonhole that as extreme and being like well that's the reason why anyone's going to go to afghanistan or somalia or ethiopia or anywhere we guide um it doesn't sit that well with us i mean if someone wants to call it extreme tourism that's fine it's not a big deal i'm not so caught up on it but um It's not a term that I particularly like, but I if would, you want to I say, would. how did I get into like setting up a company that started off guiding in Pakistan and Afghanistan? Absolutely. Um, I'm happy yeah, to. Well, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't use or, or think of it as a, in any way as a negative thing. I think it's very courageous what you guys do and it's, it's, it's very spectacular that you are able to put the spotlight on, on regions that are much safer, and, uh, you know, undiscovered to the traveler. And I know you, 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 you've done this through Untamed Borders, um, the travel agency that you started, but you also have done this probably before, and that's what I wanted to get at. So I know sure. not all of your travels are probably extreme, but I see extreme as extremely interesting, not in any way negative. Absolutely, and I think that's the, that, that's the thing. And I guess um, what, what I always fear is by putting um, sort of labels on things is that you feed into the narrative of, The only thing about the countries that we work in is that they're, you know, there's a risk and then you get the idea of extreme. But how I began with Untamed Borders, um, like you, as you said correctly, like I always 
I loved, I always like love to travel. I mean, in, in my twenties, I worked in different jobs in the UK and London and I saved up some money and then I'd go traveling either in the Middle East for a while and then come back or in East Asia. I mean, the kind of things that lots of people do, lots of uh, people who are younger um, do that kind of thing. I don't know why. I mean, part of it is you don't want to do a normal job. You want to get away from it. Part of it is to um, see parts of the world, get different experiences, meet other people, like-minded people. It was, it, it was great. And in 2007, I was on a trip through um, the Middle East and Central Asia, and I met a two guys, um, one from Pakistan and one from Afghanistan. And they both primarily worked with professional people, so with researchers, with documentary makers, with journalists, with photographers, but sometimes with tourists as well, just people interested in, in the region. And they wanted to work more with tourists. They, in the same way that I was talking about extreme travel before, they wanted to kind of do less of this kind of, of, of showing the bad side of the countries they were in. They wanted to show um, the, the positive areas and the beauty and the interesting things. And I liked that idea. And we, we talked about the three of us starting a company together. And I didn't really think there was a place for me in it. But what I did say is I would you know, work with them. I built a website. It was the beginning, you know, 2007 was, was when social media was just kind of getting big. You know, everyone was starting to get their Facebook pages 2006, 2007. So suddenly these two guys and a guy from the UK who, if they didn't, you know, suddenly you could have a travel company with a Facebook page, which had the same reach as any other company in the world. And so after six months of a year, we managed to get, um, you know, we, we, we started guiding people. People were interested. We managed to um, run some trips. And I was like, actually, I mean, this is what I want to do. This is an amazing opportunity for me. And we restructured it, registered in the UK in 2008. And that's how we began in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And now, I mean, it's COVID, but we, we have worked in between 25 and 30 countries across the Middle East, uh, Russia, former Soviet Central Asia, the Middle East and, and Eastern Central Africa. So um, it's just expanded partly due to the interest of the people that we guide and partly due to once you start working in regions that are quite interesting and less touristed, I meet people in the development world, in the conflict media world, in all sorts of um, um, areas where I can get contacts and, and, and find information and be able to operate in, in other areas. So that's, that's in a nutshell, is, is how Untamed Borders began. Yeah, I, I've been watching you guys for a couple of years, and I, I think it's a, it's a fantastic story that you guys have created and what you've built. And this, this podcast is about risk takers, and the idea is to, to get a sense of how people perceive risk and how they deal with it and how they come out on the other side and hopefully they don't just learn from it but that's obviously the most important part they also um, create something um, interesting and sustainable in the process and I, I've been always been mesmerized by the description of your trips and you, you, you mentioned the the countries that are very difficult to access I have never been to um, and I've been to 130 countries uh, but I've definitely shied away from going to Iran by myself, um, Afghanistan. Um, I want to go to Pakistan, actually, so I want to dive into this. And I've been to Ethiopia, um, but I haven't obviously been to Somaliland or Somalia. So there's a bunch of countries that, that I think everyone who, who travels a lot is very curious about. I mean, here these 
war stories and they might be made up. <laughs> and But there's always someone who flies into Somalia, who flies into Mogadishu and kind of it gives us a report of basically uh, uh, guns and steel and tanks and uh, he barely made it out or she. Uh, that's kind of what, what would you would you see and what's being portrayed even on the popular travel parks and obviously also in travel media. When um, I know your agency organizes trips and I just checked your 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 website again. That's a lot of countries um, you guide tours to. Um, are you still active in going to these countries? Um, and, and which countries um, have you visited over the years? Um, I mean, there's a fair few questions uh, within there. So let me talk about. Yeah, I'm still in. I'm still involved in. I'll let you uh, choose. Yes. Yeah, I'm still involved in in working in and guiding in some of the countries now. From what you see on the website, just to give an idea of of, of what we what we do as a company, we I'd, I'd still say twenty percent of what we organise is professional work. So sometimes for documentary makers, for researchers, for photographers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For the rest, broadly speaking, it's it's tourism, and we have a bunch of group trips that we have each year to the kind of popular places that we go that it's worth getting um, a group of six, eight, ten people together um, to guide. And they will have usually an international guide. So a guide from, um, you know, Europe or North America accompanying them. And I used to at the beginning guide all of those kind of um, trips, but now it's pretty rare that I guide them. So I would generally go um, I'd be out of the country if it's a specific project that we're working on. So um, one of the things that I help organize is a race in Afghanistan, the Marathon of, of Afghanistan. It's the only mixed gender international sporting event in the country. And I go out for that group because we have a big group of people that run it. And also I help organize the race. So it's important for me to be there. Um, I also occasionally, if it's a, if it's a, a media, if it's a production, um, uh, that, that, you know, they need some sort of specialist assistance, I might go out for that as well. But it's fairly rare that I guide um, a sort of general group. We have other people that um, that do that. And as far as the countries that we go in, I think the majority of the countries that we guide in, I've, I've visited. So, I mean, it, it, it's a passion for me. It's interesting. I've got lots of friends in these um, countries. So when I go back, it's not just um, guiding a trip. It's also catching up with people. I'd spend some days before, some days after. Um, just just checking out the operations that we've got and 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 how things work. So yeah, I love to travel. And generally, I'm away from uh, Europe in the places that we work maybe two to three months of the year pre-COVID. That was the, the normal kind of thing. So maybe uh, you know two to three months is perfect for me. It allows me to run the business, um, have the life I've got in uh, in Europe, but also I get to um, you know travel, work, and and enjoy those areas. Um, you specifically kind of asked about sort of Mogadishu and I guess the stereotypical travel blog, which is, or vlog or whatever, or someone who's an influencer and has a following and they go to Mogadishu. And I think it's a bit what I was talking to before. A lot of travel feeds into, if you're not careful, it kind of it has this sort of self-perpetuating myth about it wherever you go if you want to go to i don't know what a u.s uh, equivalent is you go to new york and you're like what am i going to do in new york so you see 
I don't know, eating a hot dog or eating oysters at Grand Central Station or going to this or going to that. So you do that. You take pictures of it and everyone else sees the pictures and you kind of do the same thing. And that's the story of New York. And that's kind of what you go to. New York's probably a bad idea because people have a lot more information about what they can do. But most people don't know that much about Mogadishu. And you're kind of limited to what you can do. And people need clicks on their blog. And it's famous for being dangerous. And so having a close call in Mogadishu seems like a good a good thing for a blog so for sure we've guided people whose depiction of their trip is different to how we would have perceived it certainly would was, was suggesting the risk is higher but on the flip side there is risk there is risk and if you're in a city where there is a bomb whilst you're there you could easily describe that as a close call i mean if you're in a city in north america or in europe and there was a a building burnt down on the day you were there, you wouldn't necessarily call that a, a close call. But if it's a bomb, you kind of consider it a close call. So the idea of risk and sort of perception of risk and perception of, of, of having a close call, I guess, is something that, um, I guess, yeah, as, as you were saying, it, it's, it's a risk is sometimes, and, and whether something was close and whether they were lucky is a little bit in the eye of the beholder. I think you're absolutely right with, with, with the observation you just made, is that these these myths about this particular place, they, they, they become part of what people perceive about a certain place. And, uh, it, we, you know, in San Francisco, where I live, um, there was this story where, and uh, it was a true story, uh, we have a couple of really dangerous areas here, and uh, an Australian couple was assaulted, and it went viral in Australia, and people realized how dangerous it is or can be in San Francisco, which is absolutely true. A lot of American cities have some really bad areas where you should never go. Uh, definitely not at night and definitely not alone or even as a couple. And you're almost guaranteed going to get mugged. Um, and it's easy to to not be aware of in a city like San Francisco that's so dense. Right? One, a couple of blocks, it's fine. And then a couple of blocks later, it's extremely dangerous. And uh, I spent quite some time in, in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. and. Um, it isn't a dangerous town during the day, but it gets quite hairy during the night. And it's almost guaranteed, local or not, that you're going to get marked if you run around downtown without a car. But if you just jump over to Zanzibar, for instance, it, this problem doesn't exist. And there is really local pockets where people feel like they can um, target. Um, there's a lot of targets for them. And the, the same is true for like in Lagos, right? And you, you have... Uh, parts of Lagos that seem, at least uh, judging from local crime, pretty easy. And I walked around Victoria Island um, at night and I never had any issues. But a lot of locals have a ton of issues that they have been robbed, um, been carjacked um, just on the mainland, which is less than five miles away. So it's extremely localized, right? And that's obviously very, very difficult to, to make that judgment from um, a country afar or from a continent afar. So it really um, is something that travelers have to ease into, and that takes time, right? So you have to arrive there, you have to ask locals, you have to make, you, you have to have the own, um, your own ability to, to, to judge a particular risk, um, to judge a neighborhood without having all the data, right? Because you never have enough data. Only the locals have all the data, and even they might have trouble um, seeing changes in, in, their, in the environment. And I think this is this is generally a problem with the, the travel. When you think of it, um, a lot of tourism, and that every country is slightly different. But let's <laughs> let's take Morocco as an example. 
I always felt Morocco and a lot of people in Morocco to specialize in misleading new arrivals. Like tourists don't know anything, right? They overpay um, for taxis, they overpay for souvenirs. They over There's a whole industry that usually sprouts up and not every country is as guilty of that. And obviously 99% of the population is not involved in this. This is a small percentage of the population wherever we look. And they kind of take advantage of this information arbitrage, right? They have way more information. They know the local prices. They, they know everything about um, the local setup. And they mislead the newcomers, so to speak. It's a bit like in, in a prison, right? So the newcomers probably don't have it the most comfortable with the people who've been in prison for 10 years. They've established it themselves. And I think the same is true for tourism. So there is this information arbitrage. And the internet has helped. But it's it's only partially solving this and because it's just so much information, there's so much over-generality. And I think you guys see this with security, but I, everyone who travels a lot sees this just by arriving at the airport, right? It's sometimes 10 times as expensive to get a, a taxi than when a local gets a taxi. And that's something people are worried about, right? That, that really definitely increases the anxiety before they go to a new place in the same country or in a different country. Yeah, that's true. And I think um, I've always tried to look, because I see it as well. I mean, you, you use Morocco as an example, but there, there are places all over the world where you've got, you know, th th there's a kind of product for sale, whether it's a tour to somewhere or, or handicrafts or this or whatever. And there's money to be made and there's commission to be made and there's helping people into shops or, you know, the free tour to whatever and you get taken to a, a rug factory, all of those kind of things. And part of that, I've always looked at it from the, the other angle. I mean, yes, you can look at it from the tourist angle. You're coming in and, and, and there's this um, information disparity and that's where the money is being made. But you see it from a local shopkeeper's angle, you've got a cruise, I mean, a cruise boat is the classic example. The cruise boat comes in, people, they're just trucked straight into a, a city or a town and have no idea what the price is, no idea really what the money is, probably have US dollars anyway or euros, don't even have the local currency, don't really know what anything costs. And people are selling things. Now, if there's four of you selling the same thing and one of them, there's almost the temptation is too much to not take advantage of that situation. It's not that people are necessarily um, ripping off, but if someone's willing to pay something and the, the, the shorter period of time someone has in a town. So if a cruise boat is stopping for the day, the harder the sell has to be because you've got these guys, you've got someone there for like a minute to try to sell them something. You've got another town where people stay for like three, four, five days. It's a much easier sell. No one's necessarily buying something the first day there's more of an interaction, there's more of a tale. So how I've seen this in different places, how tourists visit a town or a place, how much time they spend there. You go to Egypt and you truck, if people are chucked off a tour bus and there's a 50 meter walk between the tour bus and the site and it's lined with people selling stuff, they've got three seconds to try and attract someone's information. So it's all about a hugely hard, fast sell Whereas you've got somewhere else where people are spending a week, there's a, it can be a soft sell. You meet someone on day one and you can sell something to them on day three. So I think, um, I know this is getting a little bit off the off, off the track, but there's also, you know, I work a lot with, um, you know, people in lots of countries. There's a perspective of the, of the country that's being touristed as well. It's not just about people trying to rip people off. It's about doing business in 
the situation that you found yourself in, I guess. Oh, I totally understand uh, the individual who, who tries to make money. And I think but this, this uh, I'm not judging this in a, in a negative way necessarily. Um, what, 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 what you have to keep in mind too is it increases the anxiety on the, on the other end, right? So say if you have people swarming into a bus and you can't literally, I was at Taj Mahal 20 years ago, you couldn't even leave the bus because people were just pushing into the bus because they wanted to see uh, what they have to offer. It, it, it seemed like a dangerous situation if you didn't know it was going on because suddenly hundreds of people stormed into already cramped bus. It wasn't dangerous, but I didn't know that at the mo in that moment, right? I didn't know they just wanted to sell me something. I thought I was going to get crushed to death which didn't happen, what could have easily happened, I felt. So what, what I think, it, it increases the anxiety of people of taking that adventure. And the, maybe, and we see this with COVID now, right? So people have this, this crazy anxiety and have taken it um, on, a, on a notch higher, right? So COVID, many countries in the world um, have no COVID restrictions, but they still have lost 90% or at least no entry restrictions, right? They still lost 90 or 80% of their business. Um, so tourists are not going there. Um, they might be worried about the flights. And there is, I mean, certain age groups obviously have higher risk than others. But there is a level of anxiety that, that you create. Um, and obviously the individual can't control this, right? For the individual, it's a red race. If I don't make a sale, someone else is going to make that sale, right? So, but it is making it harder to attract a wider audience. And uh, it, we always feel like, I don't actually know if that's true, but I always have that impression Again, not, not, maybe not a good thing because a lot of tourists show shitty behavior, 100% um, sure. Um, but if, if you see the, the development cycle, it seems like more developed countries are in a position to attract more people just because they have better infrastructure, there's less anxiety, there's no safety concerns. It seems it helps everyone. Um, and it's, it's a bit like, you know, like, a, like a religion. It seems counterintuitive counter counter in, the, in the first place that you regulate yourself, that you kind of look for, for a higher being, right? But it seems like if everyone joins in or a critical mass joins in, then you create a better future. Um, and obviously it's a high risk, right? So if, if something is wrong in that religious idea, then you, you're all in trouble and not just the individual. So I, I've, I, I, I do see the incentives on the ground, they're quite, quite tricky, but I always felt what do you think is, is this, this, this inflection point where suddenly a country moves away from this, okay, let's, let's make a quick sale, right, like Egypt, so to speak, um, and moves into and has high barriers of entries. A lot of countries in Africa are very tricky to get in, lots of paperwork, like Nigeria, you fill paperwork for weeks. And uh, then they go to this inflection point and say, okay, now we feel like we want to change this. So it should be easier. We want to have a certain kind of, of, of groups of people that we want to use. Safety has gone up. Do you think that's, that's a conscious decision or it happens in some of these countries just advance a little bit? Um, I mean, just, just, but before I answer that, because it, it's, too, it's both is the answer, but you, you're talking about the anxiety. Um, I guess the anxiety when you go somewhere is there's a lot of um, there's a lot of unknown. So there's an unknown because there's you know you go somewhere there's no fixed price. There's no um, you're going to go out to eat. Maybe you are vegetarian or vegan. You don't know whether you're going to get that food. You've got specific dietary requirements. All of this stuff is like this kind of unknown. And what, as soon as you take away because this is the thing you tourism when you become, as sort of mass tourism begins, 
uh, you take away a lot of that anxiety because you want to attract more people. But taking away that anxiety also takes away sometimes the essence of what is actually happening in that country. So rather than in going to a traditional chaykhana in Afghanistan where you've got like three options, kebabs, uh, palau and uh, soup, which all have meat in them, you end up finding a tourist restaurant kind of comes up that has lots of different options and vegetarian options and seats rather than sitting on the floor and all of this kind of stuff and proper toilets and all of that kind of stuff. And you don't have the same people who would go into that restaurant. You don't have um, the traders and all of these kind of people because you've created a, a tourist restaurant rather than a traditional chaykhana. So as soon, and again, you end up with a tourist shop with fixed prices on goods rather than you're haggling for stuff. And you create something that is not actually of the place you're visiting. You end up having a slightly diluted uh, experience. And I think that's one of the things that Untamed Borders always looks for. Because we, we, we work in a lot of places without a huge amount of tourism, most of the places our, people, our guests visit, they don't see it through this prism of tourism. They go to Afghanistan. You see Afghanistan. Like no one's apart from us or a couple of guys are doing anything to try and change things to make it easier for tourists. Everyone's just living their life. So you get that authenticity is a strange word within tourism, but you get something that is more authentic. Um, and then going on to what you were saying about, I mean, the classic example of a country that has decided to sort of set a level of tourism is Bhutan, isn't it? You pay this $250 a day in Bhutan. That's that's basically what you pay. It's very hard to pay any more than that. That's your kind of pay, and you, and you can do what you want there. Like, it's, it's to keep out the kind of the riffraff. It's to have it so that it's kind of like exclusive. Somewhere like Nigeria or Equatorial Guinea or, or Saudi until recently – extremely hard to get into, but that's due to geopolitical reasons rather than trying to control tourism, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's, it, I mean, there's, there's, it seems to be a convergence, and, and uh, at least pre-COVID, pre that people wanted to discover uh, tourism and wanted to open up um, to as much tourism as possible. Um, and we, I feel there's a reason why Thailand, for instance, doesn't really reopen or that they've taken so much time to reopen what would be the viral part but the other part is i'm amazed that this that the, the population was was able to <laughs> how do i say that be be okay with the amount of tourism um that they actually received and uh, that that is a that is a mental um challenge and a mental toll i'm, I'm sure it has taken um, on a lot of people in thailand um, and only a small percentage actually um, makes money off tourism. And a bigger, a bigger, there's a bigger mental challenge of, that's where the whole population is exposed to. Uh, when, well, let's, I want to dive a little bit more into specific countries. And because the countries that, that you've been to, it's a pretty exclusive um, view that you've got. Um, when, when you think of Afghanistan, um, a place that we know only from say war movies and uh, SEAL Team um, um, episodes. Um, well, how do you how do you describe Afghanistan? Um, or what's dear to your heart in Afghanistan? How are how is how is the city or the cities like? Um, how's that that mix between people who live in rural areas and in those cities? Um, I mean, yeah. My look, my view of Afghanistan is. 
is is different from you know for a dozen years traveling to Afghanistan two or three times a year and organizing tourism and and events and and generally positive things i mean i always see you know the the first time i traveled through iran pakistan and afghanistan i i mean they're different countries but there's there's a certain link in that there's a there's a lot of conservatism in the countries but people are very open about themselves about talking about the the country that they're in their own country geopolitics iran slightly less about geopolitics but certainly sort of afghanistan and pakistan people love talking about how how you know how things are going their perspectives on things um there is incredible scenery you've got the hindu kush uh, mountains in afghanistan um and and in afghanistan just the rural scenes i i just love especially coming from i guess somewhere like uk which is it's quite a green place so you've got afghanistan there's these two extremes most of the country is is quite barren it's not completely barren but it's you know you can graze some sheep and goats on it but that's about it but there's a, these huge these huge rivers run through the country the irrigation channels run off those so you have these swathes of green within them so it's either dusty and hard extremely inhospitable or when you get into the irrigated areas it's shady and cool and there's great fruit and all of this kind of stuff and it's very typical of afghanistan these contrasts it's very hard on one side and on the other side extremely hospitable and really pleasant and kind of like a paradise on the other side and i think it's these two um things kind of run through um the country and a little bit of 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 the psyche and i mean for, for people that like you know historical places you know herat is an amazing city on the on the near the Iranian border um you know it, it the, the center was was sort of built in uh, maybe 500 years ago so it has all this sort of you know amazing sort of blue tiled timurid architecture and just it's it's constantly changing i mean any post conflict country has a huge buzz about it like you have an idea and you go for it you know you stuff is happening all the time like restaurants pop up ideas pop up someone just comes in 5 years ago with like some panini machines they buy in italy and suddenly it's like a huge thing and everyone's like just new stuff comes all the time i mean how how when in london or new york did someone bring in something new that everybody was like this is amazing it just doesn't happen whereas in kabul or, or mogadishu new ideas it's it's this kind of incredibly entrepreneurial um atmosphere as well which is um which just gives a huge amount of energy and i think people don't see that either don't also don't see that necessarily in their own country because they they know they're being held back by the violence and by other sort of um, political instability and a lot of international people don't see that because they also just are there you know people in kabul and mogadishu are there because there's lots of problems they're working there um whereas i come in and i do see these kind of um opportunities in entrepreneurialism and energy um which i think is 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 often overlooked i was just checking my connection uh, yes that that would have been my 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 next question is how entrepreneurial these countries are because that that would have been my expectation that entrepreneurship is something that is maybe broken or it's just blossoming and the most conflict the breaks entrepreneurship and then hopefully it comes back and it's something i'm i'm i'm, I'm myself being an entrepreneur i'm i'm really excited to see places that are that entrepreneurial 
I feel they 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 generate a community relatively easily, and they 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 they, they definitely warm my heart. If I find a country that's really entrepreneurial, and uh, I felt a lot of countries in Asia, at least on the surface, seem to be very entrepreneurial. Um, that maybe isn't as much true anymore. Um, there's definitely um, maybe just got richer or the opportunities have run out a little. When 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 you go through Afghanistan and um, or your your particular tours go through Afghanistan, how much of a of a thought do you still have to give to security planning? Um, do you have to stop going out at night? Is it that easy? Or you still you just go on certain routes? Or you have maybe a military patrol? I, I ended up in Lagos to have a police um, escort um, that I recruited for myself. Um, that I felt was necessary when I left Victoria Island. Um, how, how how many efforts do you actually have to still do in Afghanistan? Um, I mean, yeah. Look, we, we when we guide trips there, there are restrictions with our with our guests. So, I mean, we we're constantly reviewing. The, the kind of the security situation. I mean, we have our setup, we have our procedures put in place. I mean, when we're talking about risk before, everyone we, with anything, you draw up an assessment of risk. You know, it's it's likelihood multiplied by severity. So, you know, uh, trying to keep people, you know, making sure making sure people trying to make sure people don't get sick. You know, get sort of gastroenteritis, this kind of stuff. So. Okay, it's quite likely, and it's not quite likely, but, you know, we guide 100 people there a year, someone's going to get some sort of stomach bug. What can we do to reduce it? Okay, we tell people to wash hands, drink bottled water, et cetera, et cetera. And even if it does happen, the risk, you know, you know the severity is not that bad, so it's fine. Whereas in Afghanistan, we were talking about, you know, muggings in San Francisco and all of that kind of stuff. To be honest, the, the thing in somewhere like Afghanistan is there's not many near misses. It's not like, you know, people go traveling in South America and come back with a story, you know, they had their shoes robbed at knife point or gunpoint or something like that. You don't really get anything like that in Afghanistan. If something goes wrong, it's going to go really wrong. So we just have to spend a lot of time reducing that. So, yeah, the, in most of the places we guide in Afghanistan, the, the group cannot leave, you know, can't do anything outside of the guest house or hotel without us. Um, we, the, the, there's, I can go into it a little, a little bit. I mean, we look at risk in two ways, generally. Um, so in Afghanistan, the, I mean, there's a risk of um, sort of pre-planned attacks and there's opportunist attacks. So in some like, like Afghanistan, the risk of an opportunist attack is very small. So we're talking about muggings. We're talking about someone seeing the group and acting and things like that. It's almost non-existent. Um, the risk is a pre-planned attack. So we put in a lot of effort to make sure that our company is, is very unlikely to, have to be the target of a pre-planned attack by lots of methods, by, by having an extremely small footprint, changing how we work, changing how we have groups. We're lucky that we don't have a, a anyone based full-time in Afghanistan that's, that's non-Afghan. So when people come in, nobody really knows. We keep it to a very small number of people. And then, but there's the risk of us being in somewhere which could be an attack. So if we stay in the best hotel in Kabul, which is the Serena, that's where other high-profile people stay. So we just avoid staying there. So we avoid the kind of places that are likely um, to be attacked. 
And because there is this risk in Kabul, we don't let our guests wander around by themselves because they don't know what people are saying. They don't know if, and they can get into all sorts of other trouble. If they start taking pictures of, um, you know, military buildings or ministries or things like that, they can get arrested and all of that kind of stuff. So generally, we keep them on a fairly tight leash. But in somewhere like Afghanistan, there's a couple of areas, the Wakhan Corridor in the far northeast and Bamiyan in the central. And for geopolitical reasons, basically they're rural areas where a minority ethnic group, ethnic and religious group live. There isn't any kind of Taliban. There isn't any uh, Sunni extremism there. And therefore, we give the guests a bit more freedom. That's where we do things like skiing and hiking and, you know, the marathon race and things like that. So it depends on the, re as you said, it depends on the region. Um, and then we... We base our security risks on that, and then we implement certain procedures and we inform our guests. And with the guests, you can't give them too much information to begin with. You know, people just don't take it in. So you give information before they arrive, you give some more at the briefing, and we guide with small groups. So if people are kind of, you can, you know, acting in a way that isn't, that's putting the group at risk, we can have a quiet word with them and kind of give information as, as it goes on. So um, it's, and this is constantly, you know, updated when we get there can be some huge attack in Kabul, which looks like, oh, is that going to change how we work? And we're like, well, no, because we're kind of expecting huge attacks in Kabul. That's the, you know, we're planning for that. And then there can be something that you don't even doesn't even make the news, doesn't even make the wire um, on a road that we might use. And we're like, OK, that's changing. We're going to fly there now. We're not going to drive there. You know, some small incident that can change how we work. So. When we get news in, um, we speak to it. But as you said, like the team we have in Afghanistan, the team we have on the ground, they kind of know what we're doing. They understand what is going to change. And, and we also get information from other sources. So there's a, in Afghanistan, for example, there's an organization that provides security reports for um, international organizations. So we get reports from them. And that's a useful overview, but it's not as useful perhaps. It's good to work in um, in side by side with the information we get from the drivers, from the guides, from, you know, just from, from sort of local people. So that's a bit of an overview about how we see security and kind of the things we have in place. I'm subscribed to a couple of those country reports in terms of security. Um, and I, I do read them before I go to a country. They help me certainly a little bit, but the, it's a country report, right? It has nothing to do with the city or the neighborhoods or the region you're in. So that's always the trouble I have with those. One thing that, that, that really worries me, and I, I've been to so many different countries, I've been in hairy situations, but one thing that still worries me is the opportunity to be um, singled out simply because you're a foreigner or you're perceived as an American or you're perceived as a Brit, right? Which is relatively easy to see by skin color. You ask people a couple of times, or there's people you talk to, you stay in a hotel where foreigners stay. Those things are a relatively difficult to shake off and I feel like for, for locals it's very easy to target this if they have those bad intentions and um, very few people have those you know those are very few terrorist groups in terms of um, fortunately in terms of sheer manpower but they are around and that is something even and I'm actually never never really worried about random bombings right as, as terrible as they are but if 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 you're not specifically targeted. I felt the risk of actually being a victim of those is relatively low from my personal perspective, right? So others would make a different judgment. Uh, but 
in many countries, I feel like I'm literally the only person who isn't, who looks like a foreigner. Let's put it this way. It looks like an American. And I feel like if someone wants to get at me, it's so easy. They don't have to look at my passport, right? So they just bring out the machete and that's, that's the end of it. There isn't much to do unless you go with an armed guard security, which I feel is a bit of a help, um, maybe not against Al-Qaeda. But if you... Um, if you have a, you definitely attract more attention, but the, on the upside, you do have guns, right? And you do have people who've been in these situations before and you have bulletproof vests and you have an, an maybe armored, but at least a, an, an, a vehicle that can make a quick escape. So I've been looking into these options. I was curious if you feel, if you go to this level of personal security, if A, if it's worth it, would you still do a tour like this? And B, maybe the, you attract way more attention. Maybe on the on the on the uh, in some, you actually make your own situation more complicated and more dangerous. Absolutely. So um, the so for us generally, as as a general rule, if we feel we're in a place where we need armed security, we generally are not going to guide there because it it, it puts a there's various reasons. There's a one. It makes things a lot more expensive. So it, you know, there's a price kind of uh, issue. And secondly, it, it puts a huge gap between you and the people that you're the people of the country that you're visiting. I mean, you know, if you were walking through Miami and there's a guy going down the street and he's got four armed guards creating a safe space for him to walk through. It, you're, you don't feel like he's part of the community. He's, he's completely separate from the community. So Absolutely. it's not ideal. Sure. But we do use it. We do use armed security in Mogadishu, in Somalia, and in Puntland in Somalia. They're the only places that we, we generally use it. Um, and, the, and the point you were saying about the arm, having a you know, four or six-man armed security team, they are there predominantly to prevent a an opportunist attack there to stop someone saying look we've got a couple of guys with guns we're going to rob him we're going to do this we're going to take some that now you're right if it's our, if it's um daesh or the taliban and they really want you six guys is not going to do much in fact it might make things worse because you might get in a firefight and and then and, and things could be in a worse situation for you of course having armed security attracts more attention so we you you the way we look at it we look at the risk if there's a major opportunity if there's a major risk of an, an armed opportunist attack and the having armed security is going to minimize that then having armed security is is a good thing if we don't see that as a major risk and we don't see us as being a particularly um a particularly high profile pre-planned target which is the case in afghanistan in afghanistan there's loads especially in like kabul there's loads of great targets there's loads of government military police embassies international people and these are the places that are targeted. Daesh um, target the Shia communities. There's so many good, great targets out there. We feel the way that we work, we can come in and do our work and not be a major um, target and, and be able to operate in the way that we do um, by, being, by working in a very low-profile way. But something could change. I mean, that can change. The one thing with any um, assessment of risk is that we assess it on the data that we have. And that can change. Just because it didn't happen yesterday doesn't mean it can't happen tomorrow. So it's not a foolproof system, 
but we feel that in Afghanistan, yeah, there's two ways of working. That's a way that we work or, you know, get a couple of um, bulletproof cars, loads of guys armed with guns, drive around like that. That's also a really good system. But if we're going to be organizing um, the, the stuff that we do, we think that our system of working and the profile of the clients we have, the fact they're in the country for a short period of time, um, is, is, is reduces risk to an acceptable level. So, yeah, armed security work is good in, yeah, in you, situations. You. And it depends who you are as well. If you're the, you, um, you know, you're working for World Bank in Kabul, I'd want to stay in a compound with loads of security because I'm going to be targeted. I think that's a smart way, the way you're, you're describing it. I think this is, this is a way to deal with, with security. I felt for my, my, for my personal um, use, I always felt it's the, the, the environment is so fluid and so changing. There is really no one solution. And uh, as you said, in Afghanistan, there's places we don't even have to worry about that. And then 20 miles later, and you're on the wrong road, and there's an ID, and there was just an attack. The picture will completely change. Um, out of your experience with untamed borders, how many close call security incidents did you have? Um, stuff where, where, where either there was an immediate threat or there was a bombing the day before, the bombing the day after, somewhere where you personally would feel, oh my gosh, we have to actually review the rescue because it's bigger than we thought. Um, I mean, look, we've had, we've had groups in cities where there has been a a bomb. I mean, that's, I mean, we probably guide, I don't know, it's, it's COVID now, but before COVID, we'd, you know, we'd guide 80, 100 people in Afghanistan a year. So, you know, it's just the odds are that there'd be, you know, Kabul's a city of 6 million people. There being a bomb in the city when we've got guests in the city is not an unusual, it's, it's, it's not a situation that we, that, that's, that's so unusual. Um, we've changed and, and stopped working in countries and regions, you know, on a regular basis. We, we, we used to guide um, through the central route of Afghanistan from Kabul to Herat. Um, and it goes through a, past a, a place called the Minaret of Jam. It's this sort of single standing minaret that's 55 meters high. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. We used to guide there until 2009. And then um, in Without too much detail, in Gore Province, one of the one of the routes through, um, it was kind of government controlled, and then they were, you know, then it became Taliban controlled, or a, a guy that's aligned to the Taliban controlled it, and we stopped going there. So I mean, things happen on a fairly not a regular basis, but things happen in the countries that we work in where we're just like, look, we can't guide in this area. We used to guide to more places in the north of Afghanistan, to these Turkmen, ethnically Turkmen towns of Akchar and Anhoi, and we don't guide there anymore. Um, so things change. Um, generally, security starts to deteriorate and we avoid it and then it gets better or it, or it, it just gets worse and we, and we stop doing it. I mean, we used to drive between Kabul and Mazar-i Sharif. We used to drive between Kabul and Bamiyan and now we fly between the two because the security on the roads is not good enough. So. Things change and, and, and we have to adapt. I mean, generally the issues that we have with, with people is, um, you know, the usual things after, you know, a dozen years of organizing these things, you know, uh, road traffic accidents, you know, people breaking limbs, falling over, trekking or getting a 
tooth kicked out by a horse or things like that. I mean, we've had guests, I guess, not, how can I put this? Yeah, there was, you know, I think one time in, in Afghanistan, a, a compound was attacked that was maybe 300, 400 meters from where one of the guest houses we were using. So probably something like that is the closest um, that something has been. But ultimately, we've put in the, the procedures to mitigate the risk. And what I always say is whenever we do that, how would I feel if something happened to this person? I had to, you know, I've got my day in court. What did you do? Would I feel we, we, we reduced the risk to a, a, a reasonable amount? Yes, I did. This is what we did. These are the reasons behind it. Um, and but you can't predict any. You can't completely eliminate risk. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I, I, I guess from the other side, going to destinations that are more risky um, is something that appeals to a small minority of travelers, but they are extremely interested in it. Right. So mm -hmm. there is. There's a reason we like skiing. There's a reason we like fast cars. So it's something in our blood, and I think this is a small percentage of the population where we feel like if there's no risk, then there's no fun. And that's that sounds silly, but to an extent, is you you have to push yourself to the borders of your own being, of your own comfort zone, in order to learn about yourself. And that naturally involves risk. If you're paragliding, that's really risky. Um, we had uh, Xavier de la Rue on, um, he basically jumps off helicopters off cliffs, sheer cliffs, and goes 180 degrees down, basically flies with the snowboard on. And that's a lot of risk, but he's very, very cautious in terms of how he plans these routes. But he still, things can go wrong in two seconds, and he can go off the wrong cliff. And there's, 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 there's no rope. I mean, that's the, you only get one chance at these lines. Um, that's what the particular, um, your skier probably noticed, the particular a path that you go down a hill is called a line. If you miss it by a little bit, there's no second chance. That's it very often. So you've got to be very cautious on one side, but also extremely interested in risk on the other side. And I think this is this is um, a wonderful opportunity that you guys make it less dangerous or more accessible. And I think this is where you come in, right? I think this is uh, something that wonderful that you open this up um, and give people the, the ability to see a country are quite different. And, but it brings me to your guests. Um, I would think, and stereotype, you're going to be like, this is American stereotype. But I would think those are guys with the prior military training um, that have been in pretty hairy situations. And then they sign up because they feel like it's just going to be a little easier, maybe cheaper to go with you guys. But they're already really interested in risk. Is that true? Or is it really the, the average traveler signs up with most of these tours that you do, especially to Afghanistan and Somalia? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, what you're saying is, uh, yeah, is, is not the profile of the people that come with us at all. Um, we have guided a few veterans, um, which has always been an amazing experience, to be honest, to guide people that had, you know, served in Afghanistan and then have gone back and seen a completely different side. I mean, there's been like half a dozen, I think, you know, in the years um but i mean some of that's been amazing there was one guy he had spent the best part of three years flying over afghanistan identifying basically identifying targets to bomb and he was a skier he was a snowboarder actually 
And he would fly over these mountains in the winter and he would promise himself every day that one day he'd go back to Afghanistan and snowboard these mountains. And he never really thought he would do it. And then he found us and was like, this is amazing. I'm going to do it. So to be able to, to, to bring somebody's kind of crazy dream alive is, a, is an amazing feeling. But the majority of the people are, are people that like to travel. And that's it. And, and you were saying, you're, you know, it's men and women as well. I think the group trips are usually 50% women. I mean, people, women, this is a big a, a generalization, but um, the group trip, I think, partly because women are generally a bit more social and also um, perhaps the idea of just, you know, spending 10 days or two weeks with one, you know, Pakistani or Afghan man guiding might not appeal as much as it might to a man, but I'd say the group trips are about 50% women. And generally people that have traveled a lot, that's what it is. It's, it's enjoying travel. And usually at some stage in their life, I'm sure you've found it as well, Torsten, they've gone a little bit off the beaten track with their travel and found this kind of, as I was talking about it before, this kind of authenticity, something about a place where it isn't seen through the sort of prism of tourism and have really enjoyed it. And have really enjoyed, it might be a bit selfish and a kind of exclusivity, but enjoyed being the only kind of tourist around and being a bit, it being a bit, a bit special in that way. And I think that's the majority. And it's not about risk, risk. There is definitely a, and it's a bit old fashioned to say, but people like a bit of an adventure. And if we, if you're going to go on a trip with us, you know, there's always a chance that something's going to change slightly. We might not be able to do this, that, though. Or something might happen. There might be something really cool, like a festival or a marriage or a wedding or a, a funeral or something that one of our friends is involved in that we can go and see. So the, the trips are, you know, we have an itinerary for them, but if there's something small happening that we can change, that's great. And, and honestly, the, the trips that people enjoyed the most have often been the ones where it's not gone to plan, but we've managed to kind of, change it and come up with something and, and alter it and they've left and been like i've just had like 10 days and this has been like it's been it's been an, it's been an adventure and like you i think in you know in europe in the us so much kind of risk is mitigated so much has things have to go to plan you know we have to be here at this time you've got to make appointments you've got to do this everything's got to be ordered that to go somewhere in a small group of like-minded people and have a bit of an adventure. And there'll always be a slight risk that it's not, you're not going to see what you plan to come and see. You know, you're not quite sure exactly how it's going to go, but you've got a couple, you've got a company behind you who is experienced in this and have seen a lot of these things and they can anticipate things and come up with a plan B. Um, I think that's the appeal to be honest, but it's not about people who have been in the military. I mean, it's about fairly normal people who just like traveling to unusual places, which you can relate to. Absolutely. I think this is I like how you described this. And I think your heart is right there, how you describe the sense of adventure. And that, that is totally my experience. I've been trying to teach this to my children. I talked them to 40 different countries by now. And the idea is that I really try to instill the sense of the, the, the journey is actually the destination. And uh, you you want to try to find this, this, this crossroads where you do something where you know what you're doing, but you still exploring and you find something new in your life and 
Um, there is, there, I think, psychologists do a lot of uh, research into when are we ready to explore, and then they do this with animals. <laughs> it's it's typically in a state when we when we feel like our downside is covered, and then we we, we go out to explore, right? We we try to find things that that could improve our life, that maybe is better food, that is better opportunities, that you know, in a modern life, this is where we make more money, but it's also where we where we see life how it really is. And it's not the streamlined set of emotions that we see, for instance, on social media, but also I think it's it's changed people's brains by now. It also in real life we have this now. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right when you when when you are somewhere where you're the only tourist, the amount of curiosity that, that you have but also is reciprocated by the locals at the the amount of attention you get. It's something very special. I think this is if you never had this experience if if you can do one thing life changing, then this is one um, that would definitely be high on my list. And it it usually means you have to go pretty far in, in places you're really uncomfortable with in the first place. Um, my first my first thought would be Bangladesh. It isn't a dangerous country, but it's still quite different, and it isn't well traveled, um, especially if you go outside of the cities. Um, it does have some some terrorist problems, um, but I don't think they're as widespread from what I know. So. I, I did have this also, and it's always easier to say, I don't know, we, when we ask our grandparents, they would probably say, the old times were always better. But I do remember it was relatively easy to go to Thailand 25, 30 years ago when I was really young, and there was literally just a few huts, a bunch of cool people with a good community, like in the movie, The Beach, and they were on the beach in Koh and there were like the two places to eat, and that was in only clear water. And I went back 20 years ago and it was all speedboats and streamlined, right? Everything was streamlined. There were luxury hotels. Uh, there were chain um, hotels and chain restaurants. So things have really, the, the progress that we made, and I think this is the difficulty in human development, we make this progress, but it makes the individual uh, maybe more soft. It, it's harder to get to those experiences that make you self-confident, right? That, that where you show yourself, yes, you can do it, and you you can kind of conquer the world. Those experiences are pretty rare now. I think this was different 100 years ago or 200 years ago when, when people went to Africa and literally, you know, just had to deal with malaria and just there were not even a map around for most places. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I mean, I, I remember I was talking to a, a, a friend of mine and... I, we both are on the – it's like a Facebook group from the – it's called, like, the Hippie Trail. So it's got all the – you know, people that were, you know, traveled across Iran, you know, Turkey, Iran, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, to um, Nepal, 60s, 70s. Um, I know a few of these – you know, I've met a few of these characters on the way, um, you know, used to whatever – be gem dealers out of Kabul or smuggle hashish or all of these kind of kind of things and and there's a and there's a lot of this talk it's like oh yeah I feel bad for like people today they don't have the opportunity you know it wasn't like it was in our day when you know you can there's not so much a journey of discovery but I think I think every generation just has its own type of discovery you know, you, you, of course, you can look on Google Maps, you can find kind of every village and, and all of these kind of stuff, but you can still go out. There's still some amazing places in the world to go and, and, and visit and find yourself alone in. And, um, 
but it's about it's about it's yeah it's about searching for that though it's i mean it it's it shouldn't be easy it shouldn't be an easy thing to to to, to take that kind of path to take something into the um into the unknown i mean the the the, the trip to Thailand now is a bit like, you know, when I, I was, went to Thailand in, in 1998, so similar time to what you're talking about. Um, and it was an adventure. I didn't really know anything. I didn't bring a guidebook or anything. I just, I, I really had no idea what I was, what, 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 what we were doing, even though it was like Lonely Planets and all these kind of like information about places. But nowadays that's like, you know, going to Spain for someone in Europe or, or going to, you know, um, Cancun or something for for someone from um, the US, but there there are still there are still parts of the world that are less visited, and you can you know get off the beaten path and have adventures. But you've just got to make an effort, and I think that's the that's it was the same whether it was in the sixties or the same whether it was in the nineteenth century or the same now. If you make an effort, you can find some really interesting stuff and and really push yourself and really. Um, yeah, find more out about yourself and, and about the world. Talking about making an effort, I, I saw your your video presentation that you did about your relatively recent trip to, I think it was Puntland. Puntland. Yeah. And from what I know, Somalia itself has kind of split up into three different regions, um, more or less recognized by different countries and by the UN. Maybe you can help us understand a little more how does this work and working your way into Somalia and finding a way how to deal with the perceived danger or and then recognizing and finding the real beauty of it? Um, yeah, so Somalia and it's, it's, it's quite fragmented. Um, and depending on your, and it all, like most of these things, it depends on your perspective. The main sort of breakaway is, um, is Somaliland, which used to be British. It used to be a British colony, whereas the rest of Somalia used to be an Italian colony. Um, and Somaliland isn't recognized by the UN. It's not recognized by, it's, it's recognized by almost nobody, uh, but it, it is effectively independent. It has its own currency. It has its own um, government. It has its own military. It is effectively an independent country. Um, but it's it's a funny place. I mean, if you take off from Somaliland and fly to Somalia to fly to Mogadishu, you take off and it's a international flight and you land and the people in Somalia call it a domestic flight because they still claim Somaliland as part of Somalia. So it's very much dependent on your perspective. And Puntland, so Somaliland, it wants independence. That's quite clear. Puntland, which is on the tip of the Horn of Africa, um, they want a kind of federal state. So they want they don't want complete independence, but they want a, um, a federal system. Whereas the government in Mogadishu, which is the main part of Somalia, they want it to be kind of, a, you know, what Mogadishu sort of ruling over. And because the country is so weak, Mogadishu has no power to tell Puntland really what, what it wants to do. So it's kind of quasi-independent. Um, but to organize, and again, to like how to find reliable people in different parts of the world, there's all sorts of ways to do it. So as I talked about before, working in the, you know, conflict journalists sometimes, people in the development world sometimes, um, as it was in Puntland, people that work in um, oil exploration, um, you know, they need, people need 
guys who are reliable, who can organize stuff, who have access to security reports, things like that. Um, I've worked with really remote areas, the people that put in uh, mobile phone antennas, because as you know, there's mobile phone antennas in all over the world, in the most remote parts of the world that you can imagine. There's only a few small villages, there's a mobile phone. Someone's put that up, someone relatively, um, <laughs> relatively skilled, perhaps speaks English, works for a big organization, has probably some kind of security information about what's going on in that area. Um, so there's all sorts of ways to kind of build up a picture of what's going on. But the trip to Puntland, um, yeah, when you're talking about adventure, yeah, what what is, how do you go somewhere, you know, there's no blanks on the map anymore. How do you go somewhere that's interesting? And sometimes, yeah, it's a case of, with the talker on, on Puntland, I had spoken to a guy years and years ago who was in the Merchant Navy, and he told me there was this lighthouse on the very tip of the Horn of Africa, which apparently was the worst posting in the British Empire, and people would be dropped off there for, I think, two years at a time to serve at this lighthouse, and it was basically inland from it, there were sort of wild tribes and all these things, they had food dropped off every six months, and that, that was like considered to be the worst posting. The story was completely untrue, I later found, but it intrigued me. It was like, what is this lighthouse? And I think years later, I found it on Google Earth. I could see the shadow of it. And then when I had some guests who had traveled with us to Mogadishu and had traveled to us to Somaliland and said, where else can we go in um, in Somalia? Can we go to Puntland? That's another kind of region. Um, I, I got in contact with the guys that I'd made some connections there and then mentioned the lighthouse. And that's how that kind of... Um, that kind of trip happened. So, yeah, it's just trying to, and it's, again, it's an adventure. It's it's a story that, although it wasn't true, yeah, is it, it's exciting. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, a bit of a finding a, tre being told about a, a, a treasure map or something like that and having to find it. And it feels like in the modern world, everywhere on the map is kind of, covered and there's cameras and there's information and all of that kind of stuff but you know this is an area of the world that even sort of only a couple of years before we went there you know there were huge um oil tankers were taken by pirates and grounded and nobody could do anything about it so i mean there are parts of the world that are hard to reach and yeah there's always a bit of an adventure there i guess oh i can imagine i can imagine that's that's I think one of the the, the the ultimate journeys as long as we are not able to go to Mars. So I think Elon Musk is working hard on that, so we can can discover some more more maps. And it's 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 deep in our brain to to explore and, and find. Um, they, they like I said earlier, they did these experiments with cats, and they even had cats that were partially injured brain, and they would explore even more. So making making maps of your territory around you that provides opportunities is is an extremely deep desire that I think all mammals and probably all our animals have. And uh, we, we I think we're struggling more to to find this in the real world, but it's obviously the digital world, the cloud world, where there's a lot of this going on right now. This is where the kids are really drawn to because it's easily accessible. Um, but in the real world, we kind of have run out of places to do this. One other place, I don't know if you guys travel there or if you have done um, a trip there personally, that's really mesmerizing to me is the Amazon. Because it's this big, this huge forest um, that takes up probably 60, 70% of Colombia, the same amount of, of Brazil's land mass. 
And uh, I went to Manaus um, in the middle of it, which is kind of an industrial city. And um, they take you out to an Indian village, and you can. It's kind of it, it, it's it, it's quite amazing to see people who could still live um, like in the Stone Age and uh, um, five miles away. Um, there's a big Nokia factory and an iPhone and an Apple factory where where, where you make high tech. I found this really strong contrast, but it is just. Like I say, a 20, 30 mile radius around that city that, that's easily um, uh, easy to explore. But there's this massive um, rest of the Amazon that seems to get no coverage. I don't see a lot of tours. I don't see anyone really making that trip. Maybe I'm just missing that, that part of the information. I mean, look, South America is not my um, area of expertise, but I mean, the, 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 there's, I mean, I, I know for a fact because I've been to uh, Bolivia. I mean, there are, there's tourism within uh, Peru, Colombia, Bolivia, Brazil that, that visit parts of the Amazon. But it's, I guess, like saying, yeah, there are trips that go to the Antarctic. I mean, people go to like half a dozen places within it, but then there's this vast expanses where nobody has set foot ever. And I guess the Amazon is a similar kind of um, situation. Yeah, you can go so far and then, yeah, you can keep going, but it kind of looks the same. I mean, it's, you it's know, tough it's, to it's, land, it's, right? it's literally tough to land. So you only have the rivers, they, they work like roads and it's only the Amazon, the biggest one, but it splits up. So there's a bunch of different sub rivers you can go on yeah. but you know otherwise you have to like uh, paraglide into this place there's, there's no easy way to land there's no not even for a helicopter um you have to rappel down maybe from a helicopter so and then as you say there's only more trees so or maybe there isn't or maybe there's amazing animals maybe there's amazing indian villages that nobody really knows of i'm just whenever i go to colombia or brazil i see like 90 percent of their country is actually the Amazon, but it's almost completely unexplored and, and nobody really worries about that. Maybe because there's nothing there, could be, or maybe people have made these expeditions and haven't found much. Well, I think there's, I mean, there's loads of stuff there, but it's, it's, yeah, there is a feeling, I think, that because there are things like Google Maps and, and, and street, it feels like the whole of the world has been sort of documented. But it's that's just not really the case. You know, there are effective blanks on the map. There are like what is under that canopy in most of the, the Amazon? I don't know. And I, I mean, how how would anyone know? I mean, I'm not saying there's a whole like uh, hidden civilization there, but there's, the, 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 no. I think they're finding we aren't they finding that. like small like insects and, and small different species every now and again in the amazon i think because you know it, it is vast and there will be um small not exactly microclimates but micro um you know areas which certain animals are, are going to live so i yeah i i think but what are you going to do there i mean there are people do expeditions exactly like you say down the rivers but once you are you gonna? What are you gonna do once you go through? And and you know, trekking in the jungle is pretty. I mean, it's interesting because there's loads of animals and plants and all of that stuff to eat, but it's pretty grim. I mean, there's all the insects. You sweat. 
it's it's there's not that you know there's no vistas or anything like that i mean trekking through the jungle is after a couple of days it's kind of like you've had enough yeah i've, I've done it in malaysia <laughs> and had so many leeches all over me and it took me like yeah. hours to just fight the leeches off and i was worried about infections obviously and the insects would kill me and i didn't even know if i put sunscreen on or i should because it, like you have a lot of sun for an hour and then you have none for like two days um so it's very unpredictable and uh I, I was just thinking of, of Jared Diamond, you know, who, who, who went through all of Papua New Guinea, it seems, and wrote this book about um, uh, guns, uh, germs, and steel, which kind of, he learned so much about bird species initially, but also about the people of Papua New Guinea, and then wrote a whole, and, and he's a very smart, smart person, he wrote a whole book, how to, how to civilizations develop, and why they developed the way they did. Um, and I thought he, that was really interesting, the way he tried to reason um, from this observation going through the jungle for 20 years in, in Papua New Guinea. That's seemingly most of the time what he spent there, he was he was looking for new species. Looking for new places, what is on your list, places you haven't been and you really wanna um, see, but you feel like they're either too difficult right now or you probably, you probably didn't have the time for it, but what is like the ultimate challenge when you've been to so many really dangerous places, at least in other people's perception? Um, as a as a challenge, I mean, there's always do I have like a sort of challenge at the moment? Some people get into mountaineering, right? And then they go from one mountain that's a little difficult into the, all the eight thousands and uh, meters. And then they go into the one that it's possible to climb from the north side, so to speak. Um, so there seems to be always one more challenge left. Yeah, I mean, I think what we do is, I mean, I, I don't think my, I don't see my challenges as being like, oh, I want to, I, I, I need to organize a trip to this region or this country look i'd love to be organizing trips to go back to the minaret of jam in central afghanistan for example i would love to organize trips that go to parts of baluchistan which is this uh, westernmost province of pakistan i would love to guide in parts of yemen that we can't reach there's loads of places that i'd love to be guiding but at the moment we've looked at it we've made the assessment and we're not gonna i mean Look, if someone trucked enough money at us, we could have enough security and I'm sure I could, I, you know, we could arrange it, but not in the way that we like to work. So it's not like I want to do this, but I don't know how to do it. I mean, for me, in the last few years, I mean, I, I touched on it before. We've helped organize this. Um, I'm one of the, the, the founders of the Marathon of Afghanistan, which is like, you know, the, the only mixed gender sporting event in Afghanistan. The same, I've helped organize a race in Somaliland. And I sit on a couple of... Um, uh, boards of trustees of, of non-profits, one from the States and one from America that, that work with sport in Afghanistan. And I think that um, that's something that, 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 that once, you know, we're, we're reasonably established, it's a case of, okay, what, because we've all, I've always felt, and we've always felt that, you know, a trip of Untamed Board is only successful if the guests have a good time, but also, there's some benefit to the places that we we guide in. You know, we're guiding in some of the, um, you know, least developed sort of traumatized regions in the world at times. So just to go there, take a group around, you know, pay the staff that we work with and then leave 
just doesn't quite feel enough to me. You know, we should be, if people are coming, and people who come with us want to, usually want to feel like they've had a positive impact. So I think that's more important to me now is as we guide, as we do trips, as we develop in other areas is that we somehow, you know, contribute something that is more, I mean, I think there's, a, there's positivities in bringing tourists to places anyway, especially post-conflict countries where the only international people often see a development workers and soldiers to see tourists is a positive thing, but to have perhaps to bring more um, and, and to find ways that, 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 everybody can get a little bit more out of it. I think that's that's what's I'm, I'm more interested in now, if that makes sense. Yeah. I was curious why you are so focused on sports events. And uh, when, I, when I think of American sports events, it's a very commercial affair. It's basically just about, it used to be Red Bull, and then it's Gatorade. There's a sponsor who wants to put their brand out, and nobody really... There isn't a sense of community in as much as I would, would hope, let's put it this way, when I participated in these events. So we, I live here in San Francisco, we have a lot of marathons and triathlons, and usually we, we, we just, I just go down and talk to athletes just to, to find out you know, what's kind of their next challenge and just to create a conversation. I find this a difficult pitch for myself. I, I don't see, how do I say that, the, the explorer spirit in, in most athletes, uh, amateur athletes, so they are not professional athletes um, right there. And the, from a random selection, right? We just we basically just chat people up because it's, it's a great place to be. Um, that's a great atmosphere we feel in, in, in the aggregate. Um, why do you think sports events is what the, the vehicle you've chosen? Why is it not entrepreneurship? Why is it not another nonprofit? Um, I think that, I think if I'm per perfectly honest, um, it chose me rather than I chose I chose it. I mean, I, I like to do, you know, I played sort of uh, football, soccer and, um, you know, rugby and, and cricket as a, as a kid. So I, I quite like sports. Um, I think that, I think somehow as well, I mean, it, it, if we, we fell into this because there was a, a, this, a Swiss guy put on a ski event in Afghanistan. When we started doing our ski trips to Afghanistan, he helped organize something called the Afghan Ski Challenge. And we, as far as tourism is concerned, people like, I think there's, there's a growing increase that I think we said people want to get perhaps a bit more out of their trips rather than just going, okay, I'm going to spend two weeks visiting Morocco. I'm going to spend two weeks visiting Morocco and a week of that, I'm going to do like a painting course or a sketching course with someone. I'm going to, you know, something that I'd like to do and I like to travel to combine the two. And I think there's an increase in um, people, like, as you said, most people who go running and do a 10K run or a marathon, they're not always interested in travel. But if you're interested in travel and you're interested in running, what better way to like have a trip that includes a race, you know, you go to Myanmar and do the do the Bagan Marathon around all the pagodas in in and and have a a way to meet lots of new people, both uh, both Burmese and international. I mean, it's it's a great um, combo. So, from a commercial idea, it made sense. And then, as you say, it's like, oh, it's a yeah, it's a race. There's a big banner with like Gatorade or whoever sponsoring it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, the same reason that I, I organize tourism in Afghanistan. I'm not a development organization. So we're like, if there's going to be a race, this isn't a 
it should be commercially viable. It shouldn't be a, like a charity organization. So we have uh, a telecommunications company sponsors it. The international people that run give an entrance fee. It is free for the Afghan runners. Um, and we do, we do sometimes do like uh, other kind of little fundraising things to, to increase the numbers of people. But it can function. The core of it functions in the same way as a race would function in the US or the UK. There's a sponsor, there's entrance fees, and that covers the majority of the basic costs. And I think that's really important in somewhere like Afghanistan. Why should there not be a race, something like that that just... There, there should be no other reason there, but nobody's done it. So I'm like, well, let's do it. And I think that's the benefit of some of these things. Is it's like, is, and in Somaliland, I mean, we've seen it. We've seen other races link with other sponsors and say, we're, why are you doing that? We're going to do that. And I don't think I'm possibly not going to be involved in the Somaliland anymore because they're like, we don't need these guys coming out. Why? Have, like, it's not that nobody could link the sponsors and the and the sports and, together. It's just that there, was, there wasn't this kind of trust that it would work and it would get the exposure and all of that kind of things. And if you just, we, we just kind of put it together. And it's like I said with this entrepreneur and the guys, the Paninis in, uh, in uh, Afghanistan, it's not like anything new, but it's just bringing something new in a place where it's not been seen before. And it's just and people, and it's just, it's just a really positive thing. So it's not that I think, I've sat down and, and, and researched for three months what is the best vehicle that I can bring social change to Afghanistan. I kind of fell into it. and I. But, you know, I have this thing in life. If, if someone kind of, you see something or someone asks you and there's no good reason for you not to do it, then the only option left is, is to do it. And that was the same with the mouth. And someone was talking about it. Uh, and this other guy called James, who's from the UK, who puts on marathons, was keen to get involved. And so the... He, the I had to get involved at that point because I could see all the steps to make it work. And yeah, and it's like, you know, in the five or six years we've been doing it, it's not just about us, but, you know, in Bamiyan where we run it, when I went there 10 years ago, there were no women doing sports. Now in the morning, I, you know, there will be a group of girls going running and nobody will bat an eyelid that they're running. And someone like Afghanistan, that's an, an incredible change. And it's not that that race is the only thing, but it's it's part of the um, a kind of um, a bit of a movement towards that kind of social change, which I think is yeah, it's nice to be involved in it. It's a bit like life is choosing us; we don't really choose life. And, uh, yeah, I, I was just talking to to Nick Lockway yesterday, and we've been contemplating about free will, and there is a real debate in there how we use our own skills, right? And and the, the, the way they've been been by accident probably equipped with things. And then we, we take it out to the world and then the world kind of chooses us, right? And like almost from the from kindergarten or maybe even earlier. Because there's certain things that we're good at and then other things we are not good at. But to us it feels like we 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 went into these things because we wanted to. Because but very often it's no. I mean, it's it's the opposite, right? So other people around us chose us because we had the best memory community to do this with the with the right set of skills, and then afterwards we found an explanation to tell us, okay, well that's what most people do, right? I always wanted this, but actually you didn't even know that fifty fifty months ago, fifty years ago, whenever whenever that decision actually happened. So that's that's really um, something that that throws you off pretty pretty quickly in life. 
um, when when I go to countries and that might my might reflect my own personal makeup, or maybe it's much more common because I see this in other people too, is you immediately think of how can I make this place better, right? So from an entrepreneurial perspective, from a uh, certainly also from a gov governmental perspective, the first thing I do and it never ends is always keeping going on my in, in while I'm in that in that place. And most people don't listen to this. Nobody wants to hear about this. But I always feel like there would be so many things that are cheaper, easier, better, right? To 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 build a country that is more developed. Um, very often, you know, this is this is a foreign view, right? Because for for people who live in that country, there's the situation often presents itself quite differently. There's other challenges. Um, they might have different priorities. And in general, we I always say we have the government we deserve over long term, not short term. You know, we don't deserve, nobody deserves a war, but long term, I think we all, we all get it sooner or later. And that's also true for our environment. It's designed by us and it's not true for 10 years, but it reflects a long term um, um, view of the population. Do you share that too? When you go to other countries, you immediately start thinking, how can I help? But not in the sense of want to donate money, but how do I, how could I contribute to make this place better in, in all kinds of um, abilities? And that's what kind of led to your involvement in the end? I don't think so. I mean, I think um, <laughs> whether that means I'm, I'm less... Uh, altruistic or I'm less of an entrepreneur but usually when I'm visiting somewhere I think I'm always thinking of I'm of if it's somewhere new I'm kind of not exactly focusing but almost like enjoying being in that moment and just yeah. trying to trying to you know just relaxing into it and if i'm if i'm planning anything of course i'm planning something commercially of how i would kind of package this package this uh, experience yeah. okay. and yeah. describe it as well a bit i mean potentially as a as a more in a kind of writer's eye or or, or retelling or how would i describe this how would i you know if i find out something about how the economy works or how the geopolitics is working there and how these two political guys and who's done like that sort of stuff i i enjoy finding out about and it's more and, and making connections and contacts and and how just create collecting it's more of like it's, it's just a collection of information that's how I'm doing it. Not what, not what am I going to do with it right now, but how I'm just collecting all this information. And I know because I'm going to be working there for, I'm probably going to be working there. Where, where can that slot in? Where can that slot in in the bigger picture of Untamed Borders, in the bigger picture of me, in the bigger picture of organizations that I'm working in? It's not necessarily, because I'm not really a, a, I'm not a fixer, as in I'm going to come in and this is the plan. I'm more of a connector. And I can connect the people that want to travel, different organizations, journalists, you know, connecting people together, um, being the glue between different kind of bits of, you know, different people and different different things. So I think it's just a, you know, if I'm going somewhere new, it's extremely open to 
what people are saying, what I'm seeing, what's available, uh, what potential it could have rather than, and, and then, yeah, it's more that that's what I'm, that's, that's what I'm doing. Would you describe yourself as a, a polyglot in that sense? Do you, do you have like lots, do you speak like 20 different languages? No, I speak English and I, I, I kind of can speak Dutch, but I'm not, I mean, I probably learn, I probably not started, but I can probably ask for directions or some food in maybe about 10 languages <laughs> or something, but that's, that's just, yeah. but not, I can't speak it. Yeah. But, I'm, I'm to... but I like to, I mean, I like to collect information for sure, for sure. So, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in, in the US, so I, I, I struggled with, with other languages before. English was my fourth language, and obviously it's the one I, I use the most now. So that, that it turns out it's a bit of an advantage because at least when you travel, it probably makes it a little easier to, to get this concept of other languages. You definitely have that, right? Um, but if you don't travel that much, it's hard to get there. And one thing that I noticed, and I don't know if you, you ever came across someone who did that, I feel there is a limit of how many languages you can fluently, like you can have a good conversation on pretty much any topic, not philosophical, but somewhat complicated. In, uh, I feel there's a limit on how many languages you can do this. So I can do it probably in three or four languages, but I definitely can't do it. And I know words in lots of other languages, but only, you know, like, I don't know, 20 words, maybe 30 words. I don't know if you ever came across someone who did this in 15 languages. Is that even possible? I, mean, I was always curious. I mean, I know that I think, and, and, and this reflects a lot on just human nature anyway, that we, we, we have a huge capacity for doing all sorts of things. But in what situation would you speak, would you, would you need to speak 15 languages, I guess, is the question. Now, look, the, the, my partner in um, in Pakistan, Kausa, he is he speaks eight languages, but in a, it's not eight languages as he's really ever gone out to learn any of them because he's 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 from he's uh, lives in Pakistan. So in Pakistan, the national language is Urdu, but Urdu is only spoken as the mother tongue by about 10% of the population. So. He speaks Urdu, but he speaks Pashto because he's Pashtun. But the the biggest language spoken in um, in Pakistan is Punjabi, so he speaks Punjabi as well. But in uh, the old city of Peshawar, where he lives, they speak Kawa, which is the original language of there before the, the the Pashtuns. And because of all the Bollywood films, he speaks Hindi as well. Now he's not actually from uh, Pakistan; he's from Afghanistan. So he speaks uh, Farsi, he speaks Persian. And he speaks Dari as well, which are quite related, but they are different languages. And also he speaks English because he guides. Now, these eight languages are kind of his daily languages, potentially his daily languages. He could speak all of yeah. those languages in a day in, uh, in Peshawar. Now, that's without him really having, if he, if he grew up like that, and decided to learn another four languages because of school and going to China or going to uh, France or something like that, there's a possibility. But at what point can you actually, like that's quite a specific case. And uh, But at what point are you gonna have 15 languages without realistically be speaking them every day? Do you know what I mean? Like what, what crazy 
combination yes, of geopolitical. You got to be a traitor. You know, I was, I was talking to Mark Sarafim, and he grew up in in Beirut or in, in yeah. Lebanon, and he said, you know, the, the 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 Lebanese figured out pretty early in their life as Phoenicians that before Lebanon even existed, that you're just too small, and they were always behind the Hebrews, anyways, the Israelites. So they weren't the smartest around, and they were never the biggest country, so to speak. But what they could really figure out, that they could learn everyone's language, um, give them a good time when they come to Lebanon, and trade with them, go to go to those countries. And uh, you know, as more as in that situation, as more languages you speak, you make more money, right? So obviously, mm -hmm. your children have to learn it, and it's not hereditary. But I can easily see that someone goes scale scale this up and says 15, 20 languages. For some people, it comes much easier than others. It's not that easy mm -hmm. to me either. I have to really put effort in. But some people listen to words, see it once, and that's it, right? They can use it after that. So I was always fascinated by that ability because I feel I'm not sure this is actually true, but I feel every language you think differently and it opens a new world to you like you said earlier you know we need to go out and have that adventure and discover something for ourselves that is the case in in the trips that people do with you it's also can be a new experience that opens up a new world if you learn a completely new language because people think slightly different the the, the structure of thoughts are different and the um, you, you can learn, say, I learned Russian and then uh, read Dostoevsky, and uh, those are complicated in any language, but it, it gives you another portal you can go through, and then you're through, and then you know it, right? And then you're like, okay, I need to go on to the next one. But it, so it is, it, it's, it's never over, um, and I, I don't think there's a holy grail, but I feel like if you, if you are able to accumulate so many languages, maybe you can also accumulate so many cultures, you can accumulate so many different ways of thinking. But that's all just a speculation. To be honest, I, I'm, I'm still looking, right? So that's part of why I'm doing this podcast, to, to, to learn more about people who, who have that gift. I don't have it. I think, um, and look, I, I, I think there is, I, I agree with you about the um, different cultures, because one of the things that I think... Um, we are we also are, are are a little bit sort of cultural translators so when people go to the, the countries that we guide in they there's i always say we try and guide by giving people a, a framework around what they what they're seeing like it's very easy just to go somewhere and say oh that's what i'm seeing is is a is a i don't know like a woman in a burqa so i'm seeing a woman who's got a big blue sheet over her head and looks like a shuttlecock well therefore she's oppressed and probably the men are bastards and that's reasonable to to see that from that image but of course you know i think you touched on it before with, with, with papua new guinea tribal societies we all developed or every society developed from tribal societies they were the earliest societies that that, that we had as as uh, as, hum as human before you know going into sort of larger civilizations and any tribal societies has much has all sort of complicated not complicated rules but has rules about different kind of things and this is where it all comes from and they can still make a judgment and say that all the but you have to create a sort of framework for that so i see um partly that we understand and somehow speak the language i guess of some of the cultures that we that we work in and i see that sometimes in you know the language sometimes in the same way that like you would sometimes think in Russian or think in um, uh, Swedish or you're originally Swedish, right? Or German, 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 German. Yeah. Or think in German. 
sometimes someone will ask me something whether we can do something in Afghanistan or Pakistan and I I know the answer is no but I have to work out why it's no like I know why this is going to be a problem but I have to work out how I'm going to explain it to them because you know that that this is going to cause a problem for a security reason for a cultural reason whatever but it's quite hard I have to think take a couple of steps back and how I'm going to uh um how I'm going to explain that that is like not appropriate or it's going to be an issue or, or or any of those kind of things so yeah there is a kind of um i guess a cultural language that that you that you learn yeah for sure yeah i think uh out of you listen to alexander bart i just uh, bart uh, i just <laughs> listened to him um a couple of weeks ago and he has this uh, picture of shamanism so we we he in his mind and that's a, he's a philosopher and he's very well known in europe um about four to five percent of each of the population has shamans uh, he calls them shamans and those are people who travel between um they're in between other people and they they speak the different languages not just culturally but also in in, 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 in terms of different meanings and the they are the ones who are typically trusted within their population. So 95% of the population has no idea, no interest in it. But then there's 5% and that seems to be stable across any time frame, across any population. And those are the people who want to be the translators. Not literally necessarily, but they want to go out, like you just said, you have to find how to make this cultural translation work. Those those are the people who who would be drawn to this. So and, and, and they, they, they hear this calling. Um, and they are also the people who are very often religious. Um, they don't have to be, right? But that's that's often they are often priests, uh, and they are uh, working with religion on a daily basis. But it's probably my last question: What is what is your discovery, your religious discovery? Um, I don't know how you grew up. Maybe you can help us understand better. And but seeing places that are dominated probably by a different religion. Um, how does this help to to reflect on your own religion or maybe change your religion, become more or less religious? Um, I mean, I, I didn't have, I mean, I, I was I was christened, but I mean, I didn't have a particularly strong religious um, upbringing. And I would say that from time spent in the certainly initially when I first sort of traveled in it sort of independently myself in the Middle East and in the Islamic countries, I, I learned more about Christianity than I did that I, I think I knew before, because to understand Islam, obviously you have to understand Judaism and, and Christianity. It's the, the, the Abrahamic religion is the same. Uh, but not the same, but it's the same route. It's the same story. They it's reference the same each history. other. Well, yeah. They reference each other um, in the Middle East. Th- people live next door to each other. You know, they know they, they, these religions are um, so heavily intertwined. Um, and, you know, I spent time in a Syrian Orthodox uh, monastery in, in just just north of Damascus for a, a week. Uh, maybe this is fourteen years ago now, which was 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 very interesting. But I I think that I don't think it's ever really changed my sort of views on religion. I see that a huge amount of 
sort of strength and unity and power, positive power in religion. I think anyone that says, you know, all the wars and, the, you know, things like this are caused by religion. I mean, wars are caused by people and power and all of these kind of things. And you can, you can put religion in front of it or you can put nationalism in front of it or you can put whatever you want in front of it. It's about um, uh, power and ways of coercing people to come together and fighting for defense and fighting all sorts of other reasons, but resources um, and religion is you can put in front of it. But, but I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's a strange question. I don't know if there's any kind of, um, there's nothing hugely profound, except, I mean, what I would say is that it's not necessarily a religious thing, but in a lot of the places that I work, I think, to, and and when do you ever really understand something? But to, a thought that that has that always help helped me or, or or helps me understand places is that in the in Europe and in North America there is this um, the idea of how can I say it? the idea of um, being What's the word? Independent. No, being um, so the idea of personal freedom. That's it. The idea of personal freedom is extremely powerful. You know, we grew up with these kind of Hollywood films in that the 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 the, the teenage hero doesn't listen to his parents and whatever, and he turns out to be right. And the idea that your your personal freedom is incredibly important, and in a way there's a huge amount of judgment on on other cultures where the family and the community are really important and that if people don't are pressured or fit the, the people are pressured by that family and pressured by that community to conform and that's just wrong you know that's a wrong thing to do whereas i find that in a lot of the places that i work people like the idea of a bit of personal freedom like who doesn't like a bit of idea of, of personal freedom but also the, the commitment to the family and the community and the religion is also really important. It's not like a burden. It's not like something that they everyone just wants to break the shackles of and go away. People really find that an important thing as well. And I think that's something, it's, it's slightly off the topic, but I think that's something that to, to possibly to understand that helps a lot in understanding um, the cultures of a lot of the places that I work in, if that makes any sense. That makes a lot of sense, and I, I agree with you perfectly. The the view and the risk of the view that we have as the most developed place, right, so to speak, is that we 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 take our Barbadian views that are very new, right? So the the, the independence revolution, as as you as you would probably call it, that's only since the sixties. Um, maybe you can trace it back to the thirties, but it's a relatively new thing, and nobody knows if this is actually going to survive. This is like communism was a hundred years ago. It looked like a beautiful idea, but nobody was really sure if this is going to survive and it kind of didn't develop the best track record, let's put it this way. Um, it's still out there and might still make a comeback. And the same is true with this hardcore individualism that is so far away that um, and I think Muslims see this better than Christians because and, and I think Muslims and Israel Israelites or Hebrews Jews um, see this 
much stronger than than the than Christians see this. As further we go away from the ways of the Old Testament, we increase risk. That doesn't mean we're wrong, but it it probably means we're adding risk. So um, the the it's it's not like we make it seem in how Hollywood and modern media makes it sound to us that we already we've known the truth, right? So there's like Barack Obama's famous saying, "You want to be on the right side of history." He's correct, but he obviously implies that he already knows the right side of history, which is godlike, right? So, which is ridiculous when you think of it. But it was, it was, it's something that's being used all the time in in modern media and um, to fend off any kind of conservatism. And I think this is this is odd. Um, there is a middle ground, and it is for people in the end to decide. And more importantly, it is to decide for how much we're going to advance. So these, these, these religious rules are basically survivor rules. I always call it the Bear Grylls handbook of, of philosophy. So they are given to us as because they helped our ancestors to survive better, um, to create better products, to create all of the stuff and technology that we see around us. And that's definitely not the last word. So there's maybe, there's a lot of things that, that we should reconsider. But I'd say 90% of it is pretty spot on. It's pretty correct. But this is not the modern view. And I think this is really puts people at odds going to places that are more conservative. Um, and it makes it hard to like, like have an open mind. Um, people develop this. And I think traveling to a lot of places and also spending time and effort in this definitely, definitely does that for you, right? It, it, and I think you already went through this process, like all of us who've done this for a while. We, you, you open up your mind and you see, okay, there's other worlds out there. That's not just what I was told when I was young. Um, and maybe that wasn't true, but maybe there was only 10% of the truth. But maybe it was 100%, but I didn't reflect it correctly when I learned it. So those are things you learn necessarily when you, when you go to places that are outside of your comfort zone. And uh, I, I do feel that the, the, the current view of, of, of Islam is, is really, is judged from a Western world, is really interesting. Um, so we don't have time for this. I would love to talk a little more about this, maybe if you can come back on the show. And if you want to talk about that, because it is a sensitive topic, but there is a lot of different things that are going on with the view of Islam that I think are not actually what's going on when you see Islam in action. Um, so it is, on one hand, it's more conservative than people think, but on one hand, it's more strict, but on the other hand, it's also not. It is much more open. And I, I'd, I'd love to dive a little deeper into this. No, no, I... I... I mean, again, it, it, it's such a wide-ranging, to, to say, to sort of couch Islam as, as and, and, and the Islamic world as a billion people and in, 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 with one voice is... Sure. Of but course, it is it's, more... It seems to be more orthodox than, say, Christianity and even Judaism. So while it's not fair and it's a definitely generalization, we would have to make it more specific. I fully agree. It is a little more orthodox, so there is more of an adherence to the book, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, there is, uh, yeah, for sure. And as you said, I mean, this is a, <laughs> this is another, like, you know, this is another two hours of, uh, uh, of, of discussion. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks for doing this, James. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I hope we'll, we'll have you back here um, talking about some more topics next time. Uh, I learned a lot. I really appreciate that you took the time.
Thank you. No, thank you for having me on. I really, it, it's been great. It's, it's absolutely flown by. And I'd love to come back um, another time. Uh, we can find something else to uh, have a bit of a deep dive on. So, but the, thank you very much. It's been great. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. James, <laughs> take care. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.